Hi friends, this is Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to the Unchained Gospel Podcast, where we let the lion out of its cage in order to set the captives free from theirs. Over the course of the next seven episodes, we will be going verse by verse through the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 11, and just for those of you who haven't been here uh, or maybe missed a week or two, last week we talked about the fundamentals of Christ and how if we're not grounded in the simple truth of the gospel, it's very easy for worldly philosophy and logic to take us off course or to steer us away from the simplicity of Jesus Christ. You know, we talked about how the world sees the message of the cross as foolishness, but those that are being saved and those that are saved, that it is the power of God. And it pleased God, actually, to make it so simple. And Chris said that this morning. It's like it's such a simple message that people scoff at it and say, it can't be that easy. Well, God knows that we can't get out of our own way, so he made it easy for us to just believe. He did all the work for us. He completed it for us on the cross, which is what we're going to look at tonight. And thank the Lord for that. Um, so last week we left off in verse 10, chapter 2 in Colossians. So we'll pick up in verse 11. It says, In him, which is speaking of Jesus Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him, meaning Jesus, from the dead. So right off the bat, we see circumcision. And uh, whenever I get an opportunity to talk about this, I always you know, take full advantage of it. Um, but in all seriousness, what happens is, for those of you that are uh, you know, not, maybe not be familiar with the rite of circumcision, it was something that God had instituted in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into all the nitty-gritty, literally, of it. Um, but... Um, Essentially, circumcision was supposed to be an outward sign of an inward change in heart attitude towards God. God was making a covenant with his people, Israel, and he said, if you put your trust in this covenant, the one that I'm, it's a unilateral covenant, which means that God was going to hold up both ends of the, of the bargain. It wasn't really for Israel. Uh, you know, there were some conditions to some of the covenants that God made with Israel, but essentially the covenant that he had made with Israel was unconditional. He said, this is your land. You know, I'm going to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham, uh, which ultimately he does in Christ Jesus. But what it, what so often happens with um, outward demonstrations of our faith is that that outward demonstration becomes the religion. It becomes the relationship with God. It's not that circumcision was an act of obedience toward God and a, a declaration of a truth that had already firmly been established in the lives of the children of Israel. It became that circumcision was the way that they pleased God. And that's never how it was intended to be. It was always supposed to be an outward sign of an inward change. And for those of us who have grown up in any sort of religion or church background, we can see that how easy it is for our outward sign of worship or whatever it may be, that can become our relationship with God. That can become how we are Christians or how we identify as Christians by the way we do certain church activities. Um, you know, you have to behave X, Y, and Z in order for God to be really pleased with you, which, you know, we, we oftentimes, we put, we say that the Old Testament is, you know, do good things and God's happy with you. But if you actually read it, 
the Old Testament is, here's how you live perfectly. It's impossible, so I'm going to point you to the Deliverer. That's really what the Old Testament is, and Jesus Christ was the fulfillment. All the prophecies, all the laws were pointing to Jesus Christ as the fulfiller of all those things. But we can very easily make, you know, circumcision, obviously not the, the physical act for us, but our religious rights, R-I-T-E, not, you know, R-I-G-H-T-S, um, can become how we identify as Christians. I go to church every Sunday without fail. So I, therefore, I'm a Christian and God is pleased with that. I read my Bible every day. Therefore, I'm a Christian and God is pleased with me. You know, we start to be, make the behavior or the action the way that we earn favor with God. And that is something that God constantly is saying, even to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And if you look in Deuteronomy 10, when Moses is restating the law, he essentially says, you know, the, the, if you walk in this, you will prosper. It's not that I, there's all these things I don't want you to do. I'm saying, here's what you do in order to have an abundant life and a, a fruitful relationship with God. And he says, you know, circumcision, you, you need to circumcise your heart because you're stubborn. So it was always pointing to something inward, not just an outward sign of religion. Uh, and this is something that Paul battled with no matter where he went. He, would, he was going uh, as a frontier missionary to these uh, Gentile nations because he says in, in one of the epistles that Peter was called to, to speak to the children of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, I was called to go out into the, gen the, the world of the Gentiles. And all of the Jewish believers were following Paul around and saying, yeah, Paul's right. It is by faith alone in Jesus, except for you also, if you want to be really, really pleasing to God, like extra super pleasing to God, you should get circumcised too. Because, you know, better cover all our bases. <laughs> you know what I mean? We can kind of sometimes do that even in our own Christian walk where it's like, yeah, that might not be wrong, but a real Christian wouldn't behave that way. You know, we may find ourselves saying words like that and we don't mean it to sound as though we are dictating how God gives his favor to other Christians and stuff, but it can kind of come off that way. Um, and Paul was constantly battling with this. No matter where he went, it, it's amazing. Like every epistle deals, you know, not every, maybe that's an overstatement, but I'm hard pressed to find an epistle where this topic doesn't come up about it's not Jesus plus works. It's Jesus' completed work. That's what it is. And um, he's going to go into great detail about what that completed work on the cross really accomplished for us. So let's move on. He says, uh, just to restate, he says, having been buried with him in baptism. So Paul is essentially saying that if you want to show an outward sign of an inward change, that's what the baptism has become for the New Testament, you know, the New Covenant believer. It's you put your faith in Jesus and the circumcision is essentially God, the Holy Spirit, that, that righteous sword, essentially the word of God coming and dividing the sinful flesh from the righteous new creation. That is the circumcision. And the outward sign is an act of obedience of us being buried when we go under the water in baptism and then we're being raised again to new life. It's a sign, but being baptized doesn't save you. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone by God's grace that can save you. And Paul is constantly trying to restate those things. Um, and it says, what I love, it says, we've been raised with Jesus through faith in the powerful working of God. And he's very specific. Whose work is it? It's God's work. It's not our works getting us favor with God. Who raised Jesus from the dead. So the same 
spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it says in Romans 8, gives life to, life to our mortal bodies. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and he, you know, the Holy Spirit was sent down, Jesus comes and, and quickens or, or brings life to our body that was dead in trespasses and sins. As he says here, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, he's not just speaking specifically about the anatomy here. The idea of being uncircumcised throughout the scriptures was an idea of not being consecrated to the Lord because circumcision was an act of consecration. So all throughout the Old Testament, you see, you know, if you're familiar with David and Goliath, and David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who's going to defy the armies of the living God? Yeah, he was uncircumcised because he wasn't a Jew, but there was more to it than that. It was the, the fact of defiance against God that he was this uncircumcised, rebellious Gentile. So these people, the, the church of Colossae, uncircumcised in their flesh, but even more so in active rebellion against the true and living God. He says, God made alive together with him. Again, every time it's referring back to him, it's talking about Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Uh, another translation says the, uh, the ordinances that were against us and were contrary to us. Not only was you know, the, the law that God had outlined at Mount Sinai and throughout uh, you know, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all that, not only was that standing against us because we were constantly breaking that law, but the, the very essence of the law, that perfection was contrary to our sinful nature. So we were not even able to keep the law and be faithful to God. It was against our very nature because we had rebelled against the divine nature through Adam's sin. Does that make sense? So not only was there a list of things that we had done wrong that was, you know, compounding over and over against centuries and generations and stuff, mankind's sin, but the law itself was contrary to mankind because mankind was sinful and lost without Christ. But it says, through Jesus, he canceled, canceled, null and void, paid. You know, there's no record of debt anymore. And you, to, to give a, a short story about that, you know, there's a parable that Jesus speaks of and he talks about the master who has the man who owes him, I forget what it is, it's like, it equate, equates to like $2 billion or something. He owes him all this money, and he says, you need to repay it right now. And he begs him, he says, no, I can't repay it, give me more time. And he says, you know what? I'm just going to forgive it. You don't have to repay it at all. At all. And you're like, wow, that would be awesome. I wish I could do that to my mortgage. I wish I could do that to my credit card. I wish that would be great. That would be great. Canceling the debt without it affecting my credit score, you know? Um... And then you see, and he says, it goes on, and that same person who had been forgiven so much goes to the guy who owes him like a thousand dollars, and the guy gives him the same spiel about uh, give me more time, I'll pay it back, and the guy shows no mercy to him. And it's a it's an example for us as followers of Jesus Christ that if we have received such an enormous forgiveness of debt, the sin that we've racked up throughout our entire lives, and you can fill in the blanks of what that is for you, I know what it is for me. I know what it is for my kids because I see it happen on a daily basis uh, and they're seven and five. So basically their sin is I say to do something, they don't do it. It's pretty cut and dry. I don't think they're like internally like diabolical yet. I mean, it's in there somewhere, but uh, 
hopefully it doesn't bear fruit uh, over time. But um, what's interesting about that is that the fact that we, we oftentimes forget how much we've been forgiven because we don't like to dwell on that stuff. Obviously, we want to move on. But when we look at the fact that, that it's not only the things that we've done, but the sinful nature that we've inherited from our, our fathers, our grandfathers. I'm not talking about like generational sin and stuff because I don't really buy into that. But what I do mean is that the, the fact that Adam sinned and because of a result of that, it went all the way through down to the line of how many thousands of years. We all feel the effects of that. We look at the, the earth and we, we read this um, in Romans. It talks about how because of man's sin, the entire creation was subjected to futility. God did not create things to fall apart. It was because of mankind's sin that creation started to decay, which is really crazy to think about, that it was the result of Adam. So all of that, not just, oh, I messed up yesterday. I'm forgiven. That's great. The compounding nature of our sin and our rebellion against God wiped out on the cross. That's amazing to think about. And let's never forget the, the immensity of our past sins and our present sins and our future sins. And the enormous debt that has been completely wiped out because of Jesus Christ. And I think it's awesome because not only is it the things that we've done that are against us, but he's actually canceled the, the law. And in a sense, he fulfilled it. He paid the debt. So all of the, the law of, of the Old Testament is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. So that when we place our faith in him... He comes as the perfect law satisfier, fulfiller, and lives inside of us and essentially allows us to keep God's law. The law that is perfect, the greatest commandments, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets, Jesus said. Jesus comes inside and allows us to fulfill those two great commandments. It's amazing. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. And we think of Jesus on the cross oftentimes as becoming a sinner. And, you know, we, we say he took my place on the cross, which is, is accurate, but it's a little bit of a bad perspective in my personal opinion. This is just, this is the way I like to think through it because um, really what the Bible says is that he became sin. So Jesus Christ did not become sin on the cross in the sense that he became like us and sin is constantly fighting against us and separating us from God. He actually became the very rebellious actions that separated us from God so that God could judge sin apart from the sinner. Does that make sense? You know, I, I often give this analogy. If you've heard it before, I apologize, but just for those that may not have, if, if, if we, we oftentimes see Jesus on the cross and we're getting beat up by sin, you know, picture a guy just beating the, the snot out of us. And we, sometimes in our wrong way of thinking, think that Jesus takes our place and allows sin to beat him up on the cross. That's not correct. He actually became the fist punching and beating us up. Is that weird? And then God judged that action so that God would be victorious over sin. Jesus wasn't on the cross as a, as a, a powerless victim Oh no, poor Jesus, look what happened to him on the cross, all because of what I did. He chose to become the, the act of Eve taking that fruit and Adam taking that fruit. He became that, that rebellious action, 
so that he could be victorious on the cross. Not a victim, but victor. And that's very important for us to remember because sometimes we can, we make God uh, in Christ on the cross powerless. He chose to stay there for us, which makes the forgiveness even more precious when we dwell on it. We really meditate on it. It's incredible that he would choose to do that for us. And this is why I say he wasn't a victim, he was a victor. He says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. We often look at Jesus and he did take on our shame. I mean, he was, he was hung naked before the world so that we could be saved. He was humiliated. You know, God in the flesh bearing all for the world, being mocked at and spit upon. But from eternity's perspective, it says that in that, he was putting the principalities and the evil authorities and rulers to open shame. Is that a, that's a dichotomy, I think. I mean, Jesus hanging embarrassing, in, you know, in such an embarrassing way, was actually putting Satan and his workers to shame by being victorious over sin on the cross. Hallelujah. By triumphing over them in him. We don't see a weak Jesus here. Paul is very confident in Jesus' completed work on the cross. So much so that he is continually reiterating, stop thinking that you can add to what Jesus did. You don't even understand the half of what Jesus did. So how can you think you could add to something that you don't even fully understand? Just trust that it was done. And he's moving on and he says, therefore, and he's going to say, basically, don't try to do religious things to impress God or to impress people around you who think that's how you, be, that's how you become a better behaving Christian. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So what Paul was seeing here in the Colossian church was people were saying, oh, you, you eat on, you know, you eat meat on Friday? I don't know. Let me check with the traditions, and let me check with what other people say. I don't know, I don't know if God is fully pleased if you do that. You know, he's still pleased, but maybe not fully pleased or you know you you don't take the sabbath off completely like you're still out there like walking your dog and doing stuff like i don't, I don't know I, I wouldn't want to stand before god if i were you know people start to put these trips on us as christians like this is how you walk as a christian and i'm not saying that we shouldn't follow what the bible says we should do and put things aside like the bible says and and to walk in certain ways but when it becomes jesus and God's word plus what this particular denomination says or what this particular statement of faith says or this particular confession says. And we start to add and it starts to become religion, not just pointing us to God, but becomes the God itself. Just like circumcision had become to the Jewish people. He says, these are but a shadow of the things to come. God never gave the Sabbath and Jesus said this himself, you know, God didn't make man for the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath for man. You know, the Sabbath, man was created first, before the Sabbath, if you remember. God rested after man had been created. So it wasn't that we were like, oh no, gotta, gotta rest, gotta stop and, and think about God. It wasn't a trip. It was saying like, hey, I'm giving you permission to have a full day where you just spend time with me. Isn't that awesome? And it had become like, 
don't you dare do anything. God will be so angry with you if you do anything. Your donkey falls in the ditch, oh well, get a new donkey. But not on the Sabbath, you gotta wait. You know, it starts to become this crazy set of rules and regulations. But I like this verse, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Which is, you know, you start to see these people, it's, it becomes all about experience and there's no substance. And we saw right here, he says, but the substance belongs to Christ. So people started to become like, you know what, like, I don't really like get into like organized religion. I just have like an experience with God and God's happy with that and I'm happy with that. You know, that, there's a lot in scripture that, that shows us that there is an order to things and God calls us to live in a specific way. So I can't, I can't just say, yeah, cool. Whatever you think God is doing in your life, that's totally fine. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to dismiss or disqualify somebody and their personal experience with God for the sake of being puffed up or, or setting ourselves above them in some way. But that is uh, something to, to, to be careful of, is that we are not exalting experience over the testimony of the Scripture, um, because not all experiences are from God. You know, people, they start to do some crazy things, and some people start to allow substances to open up their minds to a greater experience with God. And, and people start to say, if you do this, then God will really open up new realms to you and stuff like that. It becomes very dangerous. So you always have to be careful that you're rooted in the scripture. It says, and, and you're not holding fast to the head. And if you remember, we talked about it and he refers back. What he's saying is, he's referring back to verse 10. Um, and it's kind of hard when you break up the scriptures because everything's always referring back to something previously. So you have to really read, especially the epistles. you got to kind of read the whole thing in one sitting. And it may seem daunting, but it really gives you a better picture. But in verse 10, he has said, You have been filled in him, Jesus Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. So when he's referring back, he says, You're not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. You need to hold fast to him. Don't let yourself be taken aside by some weird tradition or worse some weird uh philosophy that is contrary to what the scripture says is truth from whom this is again referring back to jesus christ the whole body which is the church is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and it grows with a growth that is from god again everything is always referring back to god it's not we're getting together and we're going to link arms and be the church and we'll love each other in spite of each other and it kind of becomes this like man-made unity but nobody's really in agreement on anything it's just kind of like this forced we're going to work together whether we like it or not when you rely on God and you refer back to the head of the church which is Jesus Christ it says that the, the nourishing of the body of Christ that healthy growth comes from God and a yieldedness to the Holy Spirit that's inside each Christian so not only is the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in the body of Christ as a whole, but he comes individually into the life of every believer. So if we are all submitting ourselves, which we talked about in chapter 1 a couple weeks back, to the head of all things, the creator and sustainer of all things, if we're giving ourselves under his authority, the head, then we should have no problem being knit together and the church growing together, not being divided by denominational lines or, you know, 
pre-trib, post-trib, covenant, dispensational, you know. The head of all things is Jesus Christ. We start there and we can work our way out from there. You know, we, there's that famous thing about in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, uh, liberty, and I forget what the last one is. In all things, charity. That's what it is. Um, so sometimes we can start to make how people, you know, decide to schedule their week. You know, if they, they, they work on Sundays, oh no, got to start another church for them. You know, like we start to kind of make things that are not essentials, essentials, and we leave the essentials to the side, unfortunately. It says, if with Christ, in verse 20, you died, and we're almost done, so I appreciate your patience, to the elemental spirits of the world, or another translation, your translation may say principles of the world, or regulations, why, he's rhetorically asking, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? If, if God has set you free, when, when you were baptized into Christ, you died to the spirits and the authorities and the rulers and the prince of the powers of the air and the rulers of this world, you're not under their authority anymore. You're under the authority of God, Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit living inside of you. So why are you coming under a man-made structure or traditions passed down from a few hundred years as though they are your way to earn, you know, earn favor with God? They're not. It's because you died with Christ and are raised again in him that we have favor with God. And then he just kind of gives examples. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. So he's like, Jesus said, you know, it's not what goes into the body that defiles the man, right? It's what comes out of him, out of the heart, which is fornication and murder and all this stuff. You know, not to get on a big political thing, but everybody's trying to outlaw things as though the things are the problems. Those things are neutral. It's the heart of the person using them. Outlawing a flag does not end racism. The heart of mankind that is at enmity with its fellow man, that's the problem. The only way you can change that is by the Holy Spirit taking over in that person's life. That person submitting themselves to the authority of the head, which is Jesus Christ. People try to put out fires instead of dealing with the spark and dealing with the kindling. You know what I mean? Like, we're just kind of, oh, well, here comes a fire and we'll put that out. And then, oh, here's another one. Instead of, there's a guy standing there with a cigarette butt lighting all those fires. Let's get that guy to stop smoking. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we just get so caught up in the stuff and we don't understand that there is a heart and there is a, a lifestyle that is at the, the center of it. And it's the demonic realms, those principalities who, praise God, have been put to open shame. So we're not under their authority anymore. We're called to spread the message of liberty and freedom in Jesus Christ. But while people still think they're under the authority of those things, they're constantly giving in. And those neutral elements of the world, whatever they may be, are just their instruments to, out, you know, to, to pour out what's already inside of them. According to human precepts and teachings, check this out. This is really important. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body. And there are people over, you know, the centuries where they like would whip themselves and beat themselves into submission. There's monks and all this stuff. You can read about it. They would, you know, 
flagellate, is that the word? Where you're like, basically, yeah, you're, you're giving yourself the stripes of Christ, essentially. And they would do that as though that was like beating their body into submission, like Paul talks about. No, that's not what Paul was saying. He was talking about allowing the spirit to come and, and, and subjugate him, to take total control of him, and not allow the flesh and the old man to revive in himself. But people, they start like, oh, I can't do that, you know, I'm going to tie myself to a chair or whatever, you know, they, but that doesn't change the heart. The heart still longs for those things when we are not yielded to Christ. The heart still is wicked and deceitful apart from Christ. So Paul is saying very clearly here that like any self-made religion is not going to change man's heart. He says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you want to outlaw guns? Great. People are still going to die by guns because the people doing the crimes are getting them illegally most of the time anyway. They outlawed drugs. That didn't do much, right? Look at, there's plenty of people. I'm sure that there have been times where when we've been sitting here, there have been drug deals happening on that corner. Seriously, I've seen it happen. When I've been out here on Fridays, people kind of do this nice little exchange and you're like, well, that that was odd. (laughs) They came out of nowhere. They made eye contact. They moved... It's illegal, right? I mean, right? But that law doesn't change the heart of man. What changes the heart of man is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross can set people free from that. Completely. Not only that, but that very thing that puts those people to shame. And we know the enemy, all he does is try to bring shame and disgrace to humans who've been created in the image of God. That's his whole intention. He's not at war with God per se. He's at war with his creation, trying to disgrace God's image on this earth. The good news is that Jesus put him to open shame. And if we would hold to that and understand our liberty in Jesus Christ, that we've been set free from those things. We've been set free from this, I got to work to earn God's favor thing. What kind of impact could we have on these things, this, the, the world that we're in? When we see things like that, drug exchanges or what have you, we could enter, and I'm not saying do anything that could cause you, you know, harm, but we've been given the authority over those things so that we don't have to sub- submit ourselves to that. We don't have to allow those things and just say, that's how the world is, you know? What can we do? We have the authority in Jesus Christ to overcome those things. Um, I'll just read a couple verses for you to, to, to encourage you. There's a verse in Acts, and I, I found it while I was, I was preparing, and it just rocked me. And I've heard it and read it many times before, but as I was reading about this, and reading about how we've been buried with him and raised with him, when Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, Jesus is not a victim on the cross. It was planned from the beginning to be that way. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen? The, the pangs of death the chains of death, all of these things that enslave mankind. Jesus Christ suffered at the hands of sinful man and suffered death on the cross. But guess what? It could not hold him. It was not possible 
that death could hold him. And the very same Jesus Christ gives us his spirit to overcome that very same lawlessness and death that is running rampant throughout this world. That's the freedom that is available and the liberty that is ours in Jesus Christ. And one final verse is in 2 Corinthians. This is our exhortation. This is our encouragement of how we should live our lives. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And one final verse. Sorry, I keep saying one final verse, but... Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why would you want to go back to those things? He says in Galatians 4, you know what? I'm trying to find it, sorry. Now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? He's like, you've been set free. Why would you want to go back to sin? Why would you want to go back to earning God's favor by your good works. It doesn't work that way. We've been set free. Now let's go and share the message of liberty in Jesus Christ to the world. And people are going to smell it on us. When we're walking in freedom and liberty, people are going to go, whoa, that guy reeks. Hopefully it's the aroma of life to life in that person and not the aroma of death. Um, So we pray and we, we go out and God calls us to go out into this world and to spread the message of Jesus Christ because he's triumphed over sin. He's put the principalities and rulers of this world to open shame and become victorious on the cross. Amen.